Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. Today's conversation is with Zev Yaroslavsky, who served on the Los Angeles City Council and the LA County Board of Supervisors for a total of 40 years. He's written a political memoir, Zev's Los Angeles, from Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power. And today's conversation deals with the memoir more than the politics. We're gonna talk about Zev's early years, his family, his heritage, his college activism advocating for Russian Jews, and his surprise election to the city council at the age of 26. Please bear in mind, this conversation was recorded before the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas and the Israeli military response. To learn more about Zev, go to luskin.ucla.edu. Luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N, .ucla.edu. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. Though I had spent a couple of weeks in the Los Angeles area when my girlfriend and I took a trip around the country in a VW van in the summer of 1969 after we both graduated from college, my first extended stay in L.A. came in 1972 when I was assigned here by the national staff of the McGovern campaign to run an assembly district in L.A. County, the 52nd. Its boundaries have been more than once remade in the 50 years since, but at that point, it was the most conservative Democratic assembly district in the state. There were more conservative Republican districts in Orange County, the Central Valley, probably San Diego as well. And the 52nd included a lot of cities that many people who live in L.A. probably hardly know. Bell, Bellflower, Bell Gardens, Cudahy, Commerce, Linwood, Downey, Maywood, Southgate, Huntington Park. I moved from the west side of L.A. to Long Beach in 2017 and recently visited an open house at the local office of my congressperson, Robert Garcia. On one wall, he's hung mock street signs of each town in California's 42nd. And though the district includes some that were not in my old territory, most notably Long Beach, that wall displayed most of them. It was a funny feeling of my time here having come full circle. In 1972, the area included major factories, Firestone, Goodyear, Lieber Brothers, Ford, GM, all of whom closed down over the next few years. It was working class to middle class, heavily unionized, and just beginning to change demographically. And I lived during the campaign in Downey. And except for a year in Cambridge and a year in San Francisco, I have lived in LA County ever since. And except for a couple of early years in Santa Monica, and as I said, the last few in Long Beach, most of those years in the city of Los Angeles. Well, today's guest, Zev Yaroslavsky, also worked in the McGovern campaign in 1972. I assume we probably passed each other in the hallways. Uh, I believe the office was on St. Andrews, right next to uh, Western on Wilshire. I believe he was in charge of Jewish outreach for the state of California. I ended up moving here for good in 1975, the year a 26-year-old activist in the cause for Soviet Jewry was elected to the LA City Council. Zev Yaroslavsky was part of my local government for nearly 40 years until termed out in 2014. 19 plus years on the Los Angeles City Council and 20 on the LA County Board of Supervisors. He's now the director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs in the Department of History, focusing on the intersection of policy, politics, and the history of the Los Angeles region. And as I said, he recently published his first book, Zev's Los Angeles, from Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power. Zev never ran for mayor, never moved to Sacramento or to Washington, D.C. He studied history at UCLA, and I look forward to the chance to get a feel for his perspective on the past, his experiences, the emergence and the evolution of today's Los Angeles over those 40 years, the present, and hopefully some on the future. 
and probably some reflections on the larger political situation. How might the lessons he learned locally, albeit in a city and a county as populous as many states, but how might those apply to the nation as a whole? I hope anyone who listens to this show on a regular basis believes that I do mean it when I say it's about a world that just might work. And rather than be identified as political or progressive or environmental, though at times it certainly may seem to fit all of those, I want these conversations to be a search for a world and a society that works. And there are many who probably believe, and with good reason, that it is hard to find true public servants in politics or in elective office. But I believe Zev Yaroslavsky to be one of those public servants. Welcome, Zev Yaroslavsky, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. It's good to be with you, Terrence. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. Let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Friday, August 18th. So I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we end up talking about. And I mentioned some highlights of your story, but can you tell us in your words a bit about how you see your path to the life you've led? Now, since your book is a memoir, feel free to take time, just as you do in the book, with, with early life, even you know your, your, your uh, family ancestry, the things that have made you who you are and made you into the person who ran for office early and who served L.A. for as long as you did. Feel free to mention mentors, turning points, detours, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Sure. <clears throat> First of all, uh, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast, Terrence. Uh, it's an honor. Uh, you know, my book is is, uh, is a memoir, but it's also a history. Uh, I, I'm only the only thing I'm trained to do is <laughs> is, is jog and uh, and and be a historian. I never used that degree uh, during my career, although I I did pay quite a bit of attention to history. So my history goes back, uh, from my point of view. Uh, to my uh, grandparents, uh, who I never knew. They were all gone by the time I was born. But there's one one member of my uh, grandparent family, uh, my maternal grandfather. Uh, they all they all lived in in the in Ukraine. Uh, my parents uh, were born in the, in Ukraine, and they migrated, immigrated to the United States in the early 20s. My dad in 1921, my mother, and and her parents uh, in 1923. And that's that's a quite a saga, as uh, you know, I, I'm not going to spoil the book for, for the <laughs> readers, but uh, it was a, a Dr. Zhivago kind of a, of a story. And, uh, and my grandfather was, uh, was an idealist. He was, he was one of these folks who, uh, uh, he was a labor Zionist. He was uh, a socialist, you know, lowercase s in, in Ukraine, very much anti uh, the czar. And, and uh, he, his, his, he was a teacher, uh, a Hebrew teacher in, in schools in in Ukraine, and he, uh, uh, he and he advocated uh, for social activism. Uh, that's where my mother got her social activism. My dad had his parents uh, in a different part of Ukraine. Uh, they they were less politically active, but my dad got active in the Zionist movement, labor Zionist movement in those days. My grandfather was uh, one of the people of that generation that converted the Hebrew language from what was for two thousand years a language of scripture. Uh, into a functional language. Uh, there was no room, there was no word for bathroom in, in Hebrew sure, uh, sure. until he came around, uh, his generation came around. And so he, uh, uh, he's always been fascinating to me. And fortunately, we have a lot of his writings uh, that um, letters he wrote back to the old country, you know, things he wrote while he was in the old country. The one I love the most, though, was his, he was writing a letter back to his friend in, in Ukraine. And explaining how frustrated he was in New York, uh, teaching eight-year-old kids who didn't pay attention to what he was talking about, and they, they didn't behave well. They threw spitballs across the <laughs> classroom and kind of things I did <laughs> when I was eight years old. And, and then he says, in words that are etched in my psyche, he says, the only thing these boys seem to care about is this game called baseball. <laughs> now, in 1925-26, New York, uh, what would you rather be doing? Studying Talmud and Torah, or uh, or going or watching Babe Ruth? You that's know? right. That's the twenty. That's the twenty-seven Yankees. That's, that's Lazari right. right. Gehrig. Right. So I, I kind of channeled him on that. I, I said he would not have had me as a very attentive student in, in those years. So, but I and he was a, a kind of an amateur scientist. He he was fascinated with physics. He did many experiments. He regaled his students in exper physical experiments and things like that. So I was fascinated by him. He died in 1940. They came to New York in, in the early 20s. They moved to L.A. in 1937 because the he had some health issues, and his doctor recommended he could go to a place with clean, dry air. Uh, 
<laughs> and he came to Southern California. And One for two uh, isn't bad. Yep. <laughs> that's right. And uh, and as a result, uh, that you know, my my mother, of course, uh, came with him, and my dad, uh, my mother and dad were were married by then, and um, uh, they they settled in Boyle Heights, which is where I was born, and my sister was born. Uh, I spent the first eight years of my life in Boyle Heights. I went to elementary school there. Uh, it was a, a great community. I still go back to Boyle Heights from time to time. I, I, I love the place. I have a lot of uh, fond memories of it, and uh, and I care a lot about it. I mean, it's a community that itself has been uh, stressed with uh, change and gentrification and things of that sort. But we were, uh, my parents were union activists. They were, uh, uh, they formed a Hebrew teachers union in LA in, in the early 40s. Uh, politics and policy um, and social justice issues were the subject of our conversations around the dinner table. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get an education by being lectured to. I, uh, my sister and I got an education by watching what my parents did. Sure. And, sure. Uh, and it made all the difference in the world. So when, when I grew up, when I was a teenager, and we, we moved uh, at the age of eight, we moved to the Fairfax area. Uh, and uh, where I've lived within eight blocks of the house, my parents bought uh, ever since. Uh, I'm, I'm still living in the same neighborhood. I'm a sociological oddity in that regard. I love this neighborhood. You certainly are. No, I, I, it's wonderful. When I speak to people in small town America, if you will, um, that happens. People, you know, live within blocks of their family home. But to do it in Los Angeles is, is quite something. I mean, that's, it really, it really I think it's as, it's as much as anything a demonstration of who you are and how you relate to the city. And it, it's also a strategic decision. The, the, the Fairfax area is actually centrally located to all the things that matter to me. Downtown, where I worked for 40 years. Uh, the airport, where I had to go to travel. Uh, Dodger Stadium, where yeah. I had to go watch Sandy Koufax. But everything is in, is in uh, used to be within 20 minutes of my house. Now it's 45 minutes right. from my house. Same distance, <laughs> different time. That's um, exactly let me. One thing yeah. that, you, that, that I know is true is what occasioned your parents move from Boyle Heights to Fairfax? So my parents were uh, Jewish educators. That's what they did for a living. Uh, and when they came to Los Angeles, they took over a school, an after-school school, you know, where kids <laughs> went to Hebrew school after regular school. Right. Uh, it was a labor Zionist kind of a school. It had social justice themes, uh, you know, equality uh, to all peoples and uh, the way we were raised at home, and uh, it, it, the school was in City Terrace, uh, and they stayed in Bo and City Terrace is right next door to Boyle Heights. It's a ten-minute drive from our apartment to to their school, and uh, when the last uh, in the last year uh, of our residency there, uh, the reason we moved was because my my parents couldn't find enough kids to fill one classroom. The migration of uh, after World War II, the uh, the Jewish community exodus from Boyle Heights began in earnest. People moved to the Fairfax area. Some moved to the San Fernando Valley. Uh, it was a it was a time of, of uh, a great migration of uh, peoples all over the place. Big developments were taking place in the valley. New homes, cheap homes, and uh, and so my parents couldn't fill a classroom. They we'd still be living in Boyle Heights if if they could still that's sustain right city terrace folkshul as they called it. Uh, so when they when the school couldn't sustained itself uh they shuttered it it's now the and has been for years the plaza community center on city terrace drive i've gone back there many times and talked to the folks about my memories of the place sure, and, sure. and uh and and we moved to the fairfax area where my parents continued to be um uh, jewish educators hebrew teachers my my mother taught hebrew at la city college They're the first hebrew teacher uh, in, in the community college system in, in la and I still run into people to this very day uh, who tell me that they they had my mother as a teacher at City College or or elsewhere. Uh, she was one of those teachers where you know you you have two or three teachers that made a difference in your life, uh, and um, if you do, you're very lucky. She was always on that list for for uh, for the people she taught. So I I get to uh, she died when I was ten, so I never got to know her as an as an adult. Wow, um, yeah. And, uh, uh, but I do hear from people who had her as a teacher, especially the, the ones that were in college and had her as a teacher. And I get to learn through them, you know, what kind of a woman she was and, and uh, you know, what, what made her special to them. So it's it's kind of uh, fate's way of, uh, of connecting me to, to my mother. It's a great uh, tragedy for me. Uh, my sister is, is older than I am and got to know her as a teenager. I did not. And, uh, and I, who knows how that affected my trajectory sure, in some yeah. respects. But uh yeah that was uh and and we you know we lived here uh, my, my 
I was a latchkey kid. My my parent, my my mother, as I said, died when I was young. But my my dad taught after school. Right after, he taught from four to nine o'clock. He had two two sessions and taught all over the place in the San Gabriel Valley, in the West Side, in the San Fernando Valley. And I was I was a latchkey kid. I was home alone. I had to cook my own dinner and and do my own work and hold myself accountable for all all I had to do. It was by the time my dad got home from work, uh, I was sleeping and. It was a uh, uh, kind of a lonely, lonely existence there for for a while. Vin and, uh, Scully, Vin Scully was probably who put you to bed, right? Well, every night, uh, <laughs> uh, every night, I had a radio right next to my bed, and uh, I mean, I've I've listened to to him. I, you know, that you, you, the book talks about this. My my fantasy in life was to take take his place uh, <laughs> once once he retired. Of course, a d- damn good thing I didn't wait till he retired. That's right, uh, but. Uh, yeah, I was just enamored with him. I used to sneak into the press box at Dodger Stadium and and try to try to be in his presence and just talk to him. He didn't tolerate young thirteen year olds coming into his broadcast booth. He kicked me out once, uh, <laughs> and and he was he was talking to to Danny Kay, the the great yeah. actor, comedian, dancer, all all those things. Danny Kay grew up in the same tenement that my dad lived in in, in Brooklyn. And uh, Kay was was younger than my dad, and my dad remembers when he had his bar mitzvah. He was kind of a rebel kid, and so I walk into the press box and I see Scully is talking to Danny Kay, and I said, "Whoa, this is a, I just won the lottery. I can talk to Kay about my dad knowing his parents." And I didn't have a chance. You know, <laughs> Scully says, "Out that door, right there, <laughs> out that door," and uh, it broke my heart. But I uh, got to know him in later years, sure, and yeah. uh, we became good acquaintances. He did a beautiful. A beautiful tribute to me, a very funny one. When I retired, uh, you can get it if you on YouTube. Just put in Zev Yaroslavsky and Vince Scully, and it's a three-minute bit which uh, just brought the house down. It was fantastic, and I, I loved them. And uh, yeah, so Vince Scully put me <laughs> to bed every night, and I, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to tell stories like him. He was such a great raconteur. Uh, the one that I remember the most is uh, is the night, you know, the, the Roy Campanella night, which uh, most of your listeners probably don't. Don't remember, but uh, there was a it was a a benefit baseball game between the Dodgers and the New York Yankees. It was an exhibition game to raise money for for Campanella, and it sold out the Coliseum at the time. I think it was 1959, and uh, it's you know 90,000, 92,000 people at the Coliseum, and I remember him describing at one point in the game they asked everybody to light light a match or a cigarette lighter, and this this the way he described the sea of of, of lights, 90,000 points of light, if you will. And uh, uh, the thing about him that, I, that, that we all loved is that you know, he, he proved the proposition that you can actually paint a picture with words. Yes. And not, not very many of us can do that, but boy, did he, he did it. Um, and uh, I tried to convince him to write a memoir. I, I begged him to. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing him on KPCC. They asked me to they offered me an opportunity to substitute for Larry Mandel for, for one show. And he said, you can interview whoever you want. And I asked Scully if he would be willing to do half an hour with me. And he did on the phone. And I said, are you, are you thinking about writing a memoir? He, he said, he wouldn't do it. Uh, he says, it's egotistical. And I said, no, I said, Vinny, uh, what's egotistical, what's egotistical is taking your stories to your grave. I was just going to say, yeah, it's a gift, Vin. Yeah. You, you owe it to, to all of us because he had, he had so many, so many stories. Uh, you could probably write a book based on the stories that we have of him on in recording. On that's video. right. What I was going to say is, at least in his case, they aren't lost. That's right. The ones the ones that are recorded. But you know, I I talked to him once. I I, I I mean, this is kind of off off the subject, but it's interesting. We were at a book a book party of all things, a book signing party for somebody, and he was there. And I asked him, "What's your favorite memory?" Of, of a World Series game, okay, is it Kirk Gibson's home run, is it, you know, Don Larson's perfect game, he, he broadcasted all these things, sure. right? and he says, well, and, you know, he talked the way he broadcasts, you know, pleasant good evening to you, Jeff, wherever you may be, <laughs> and, and, uh, and he would say, he, and he said, uh, the game I'm most, uh, that sticks in my memory is the 1941 <laughs> World Series between the, I think it was the St. Louis Cardinals and the Dodgers. And it involved a, a pitch that got away from the catcher, a strike three pitch. The, the runner got the first, the batter was able to get the first base. The next guy hits a home run and the Dodgers lose the championship. Uh, not the Cardinals, it was the St. Louis Browns. Uh, I was going to say, right. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't I, be the series I, I if it was myself. the Cardinals. Yep. Yeah. 
And uh, anyway, and so, you know, here's a, who, who remembers these things? I, I guess we all, we all, uh, he had an incredible memory. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, Vince Scully was very much, um, I mean, I used to sit in front of a TV set with my dad's reel-to-reel tape recorder and broadcast games. I found those tapes in my garage uh, some years ago, and I had them trans- transferred onto uh, uh, CDs. Sure. I had a, a broadcast of the 1963 Rose Bowl between the USC Trojans and the Wisconsin Badgers, which at the time, uh, up until more recent years, was the greatest Rose Bowl game ever ever played. It was number one versus number two. It was a close game at the end. And here I am broadcasting. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, let me see if I'm right. Ron Vanderkellen passes for like 500 yards? Something like that. I don't know if it was 500, but he, he had a great game. His <laughs> receiver, Pat Richter, and, and the uh, I think it was Pete Bethard was the SC, uh, uh, SC uh, uh, quarterback. Uh, the, the SC was leading 42 to 14 in that game. And then Wisconsin in the second half just stormed back and uh, – and the final score was 42 to 37. They almost they almost pulled it off. And I, in those days, I was an SC fan because my mom got her master's in SC. Uh, but that that didn't it didn't take long or much to change that allegiance to, uh, once I got into UCLA. Sure. But, yeah. So I have a I have a recording of Zev Yaroslavsky calling the play by play of the 1963 Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl game. And uh, and it, you know that was really uh, if I had spent as much time. Uh, perfecting my broadcasting skills as I, as I did on my social activism stuff. Uh, uh, who knows? I might've, I might've, uh, uh, ended up in the broadcast field, but he, he, uh, in his, in his, uh, video that he did for my retirement, uh, he, he said, he said he always knew that, that I wanted his job and it, it always had him concerned. And so he wanted to take the bull by the horns now that I was retired. And he said, he wanted, he suggested that I get started in, in a lower classification of, of baseball. And he said, the Dodgers have a, uh, a, a minor league team in class D baseball in, uh, in mid Midland, Michigan, uh, they're called the great lakes loons. <laughs> and he said that that would, and by the way, Clayton Kershaw pitched for a short period of time for great lakes loons. Midland is the corporate headquarters of the Dow chemical company. So I suspect, you know, yeah. you know the history of the Dow chemical yeah. company and yeah. you know, the population of, of Midland hasn't changed very much in the last hundred years. The stadium of course is called Dow stadium. And he would <laughs> and have so, put in a good word for you, wouldn't he? Yeah. He, he would, he would, t- he would do whatever it took. <laughs> anyway, I, I recommend, uh, I recommend people look at that YouTube. YouTube. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's very yeah. funny. So I'll tell you what, I really appreciate actually, you know, you're being willing to go down a pathway that deeply because it, it, it as I said, I want people to meet you and not just, you know, the book or the, you know, the political decisions and so on. So you end up at UCLA and you become an activist, as I said, and your cause is Soviet jewelry. And your explanation, which I, I know of why that was, is quite fascinating. Let us know. So, um, you know, I, I was uh, I was a social activist kind of in my DNA. I, I'm sure I got it from my parents and and, uh, and and my environment in Boyle Heights. And Boyle Heights was a cauldron of social activism, union activism and things of that sort. And uh, and it was ni- the 1960s and I was, you know, the, the, the country was roiled in, in the civil rights movement. Uh, I was a little too young to go on a Freedom Rider bus. I would have if I had been older. Uh, I actually toyed with the idea when I was 15 or so and mm-hmm. my dad disabused me of that notion very quickly. Uh, and uh, then the anti-war movement, and, and I was a participant. I wasn't a leader in it, but I certainly was a, a participant. In, yeah, we're, in we're by the way, we're about six months difference in in age, so this yeah, is so all you, parallel. You know for the me. drill. Yeah. yeah, that's why we that's why we were both working for McGovern. For McGovern, yeah, and I remember that headquarters on Western Avenue uh, extremely well. Uh, it was a great headquarters because it was visible from the Hollywood Freeway, and we had a big McGovern Shriver yes, sign did. that hundreds of thousands of people a day driving there it was uh it didn't it didn't win california for us but it was a great experience in any case uh um uh, i went to the soviet union in 1968 uh to meet my my aunts my dad's sisters my grandmother who had gone back to the soviet union this is i'm not going to spoil the story right it's in the first chapter of the of the book but she went back and uh ended up living in leningrad she passed away in 1964 and uh 
Uh, I never got to meet her, but my sister did. And uh, but uh, my aunts, my my dad's sisters, still lived in in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, which of course has been in the news yeah. uh, the last year and a half. And uh, and so I, I I made a my grand tour of Europe that that summer, and and I went to uh, I spent two two and a half weeks in the Soviet Union. Uh, and my aunt met me, my oldest aunt, older aunt met me in uh, in Moscow. She was going to kind of be my tour guide, you know, the Yiddish mama, as they say. Uh, and um, and, and she took me under her wing and we're walking around Red Square and uh, I had already gotten active in the Soviet Jewry movement. Now, let, let me back up. Uh, when I had my bar mitzvah uh, in 1961, uh, I got dozens of telegrams from you know all the family friends who lived in New York and Israel and you know Chicago, you name it. We got one telegram from my aunts in Kharkiv and uh, and, and uh, all of the other telegrams said, uh, you know, congratulations on your bar mitzvah, mazel tov on your bar mitzvah. Everything was bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah. The telegram from Kharkiv was con congratulations on your birthday. And uh, I'm a precocious little 13-year-old. I asked my dad, you know, what's with happy birthday? <laughs> Everybody else is yeah. mazel tov, bar Didn't mitzvah. Didn't they get the news? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys are telling me now I'm a man and, you know, all I get is happy birthday. And, and he explained to me that if they had said bar mitzvah in the telegram, first of all, the telegram might never, never have gotten sent. Uh, it would have been intercepted. <clears throat> and secondly, uh, he, he said they, they could be punished for it. They, you know, they could be hauled into the KGB headquarters. They, you know, not likely they would have been sent to Siberia over a telegram, but you never know. And there's a lot of fear. And uh, that got my attention at a relatively early age. And so I got interested in that whole subject matter. Uh, my, my grandmother in Leningrad uh, survived the, the siege of Leningrad, which was one of the most brutal, you know, tragedies and, and uh, you know, murder that uh, the, the Germans just surrounded the city and starved about a third of the population of Leningrad to death. And uh, you know, the irony, just to digress for a second, is that Vladimir Putin comes from Leningrad. He had a brother who was older than him who died of starvation in Leningrad during the war. And now he's doing the same thing to Ukraine that he oh. trying to do the same thing to Ukraine as he as, as his family was victimized because uh, he's a he's an old Leningrader, St. Petersburg or whatever we call him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These days. So uh, so I, anyway, I got interested in this issue. And, and as a high school student, I started to write articles about it in our school paper and things of that sort. And then I go to, to Russia in 1968, and we're in Red Square, and my Aunt Rosa says to me, uh, uh, you know, taking me around, I say to my Aunt Rosa, I said, I ask, uh, so what's it like for Jews here in the Soviet Union? And she put her finger to her mouth, and she said, shh, the, the walls have ears. And I'd never heard that phrase before. Uh, I knew what she was saying, uh, and I was shocked by it. Um, and... Uh, and shocked for two reasons. Number one, that somebody could be listening in the middle of this huge square. And number two, uh, what do you mean the walls have ears? The nearest wall is 100 yards away. This is Red Square, for God's sake. Uh, and, and it just got my uh, my attention, my antennas up, because uh, whether they, they could hear us or not, the fact that she was afraid they, they could uh, altered her whole you know, way of life. Uh, you don't talk about these things in, in open. That's, that's in, right. In, At that point, open... it may not even be a practical consideration. It's it's a nervous response. Exactly. And uh, and that's how dictatorships operate, you know, through fear. And you got you, you make the worst case scenario assumptions about whether they're listening to you or what whatever watching you. Uh, and sometimes they do. But I, I don't think in 1968 they had directional mics that were right, that powerful. Right, right. I could be wrong. But in any case, uh, the way we communicated was on magic slates. And, you know, you all remember the magic yeah. slates. You write something on it and then you show it to the person you're writing it for. And then you, you, rip, you, you, you rip the cellophane off and erase what you had written. That's the way you communicated on sensitive subjects when you went to, to the Soviet Union. And uh, that, that trip uh, transformed my life. Uh, I made a commitment to myself uh, that I would, when I came home, I would, I would organize, a, you know, found, founded an organization, a, a movement of students on, on behalf of Soviet Jews. Uh, this was an issue uh, that became very ubiquitous in the 70s, but it was not at all on anybody's radar screen in 1968. There were very few people involved in that issue. So uh, one, one, one sec. Let me tell people this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking today with Zev Yaroslavsky. He won a seat on the Los Angeles City Council at 26, served there and on L.A. County's Board of Supervisors for the next 
40 years until he was termed out in 2014. He's written a political memoir, Zev's Los Angeles, From Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power. And you can learn more about Zev's work at Luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N, luskin.ucla.edu. Most people, or an awful lot of people that are listening, probably don't even remember what the issue was. What was it about yeah, good um, point. Soviet uh, Jewry that needed activism? So uh, the Soviet Union had, had a, a system uh, where uh, they, they categorized people by their nationality. If you were a Ukrainian who lived in Moscow, your internal passport, which was your internal identification card, you know, compared to our driver's license, it had a space there for nationality. So if you were born in Kharkov, Kharkiv, uh, and you lived in Moscow, uh, your your ID would say you're Ukrainian. If you were uh, Belarusian, I would say Belarusian, etc. Even though it was supposed to be, you know, one big happy country, right, uh, the right. USSR. Uh, there were 15 or so republics. They they were all nationalities, but there were a lot of nationalities that didn't have their republics, and they were just considered nationalities. Jews were one of them, and anti-Semitism has been a part of the DNA of Eastern Europe and Russia and Ukraine and the Baltic countries, um, as it has in most parts of the world, uh, for a thousand years or more. And uh, uh, so that it, you know, it was it was part of their their life. That's why so many. Uh, Jews emigrated from the Soviet Union uh, or Tsarist Russia, for that matter, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. That's why my my grandfather came. Uh, he 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 was for the revolution in uh, uh, in 1917. Uh, he hated the Tsar. My mother writes in, about the day that he took the Tsar's picture off of the wall in his classroom. He was thrilled. But then he realized that the Soviets, um, uh, despite the fact that they said, you know, we're not going to compartmentalize people we're not going to categorize people get getting they wanted to get rid of religion they wanted to they, they didn't want nationalities to be uh dominant uh even though they had nationalities uh he saw trouble for the jewish community uh and and there was and of course once once stalin took over it was it was very palpable uh and my my grandfather saw it coming and uh and my dad saw it coming and uh both of them separately they didn't know each other back then they, they made the decision to uproot themselves and come to a new a new land uh so so there was this ongoing uh history of anti-semitism uh some of it quite brutal uh people who supported the creation of a jewish state uh were you know were were persona non grata in many cases were were exiled to siberia sometimes into labor camps into the gulag uh we all know about stalin's uh you know night of the long knives and Jewish Jewish poets were murdered. Uh, I think it was just a few days ago we celebrated that uh, or commemorated that that night. Uh, there was just a lot of, of anti-Semitism, and the trouble is that you could not um, you you could not hide uh, as a Jew when anytime you did anything, if they if they required you to show your ID, it said Jew on on the card uh, on your uh, internal passport and so it, it, it institutionalized discrimination there were quotas about getting into the university there were jobs you couldn't get because you were a jew it was it was just one of those things my aunt rosa that we talked about uh, you know her maiden name was yaroslavsky yaroslavsky is not a jewish name uh, in russia it's uh it's a russian name uh it's kind of a wobbler you know like newman newman can be catholic it can be jewish oh right 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 yeah yeah uh, Yaroslavsky, there's a Yaroslavsky buried in the Kremlin wall. It was a Stalin guy. Uh, uh, my, my aunt never took on her husband's name because it's uh, her husband's name. My uncle, I don't remember what his last name was. Goldberg. Let's call him Goldberg. Right, but clearly Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly Jewish. She preferred to use the, the non-Jewish, uh, uh, name, uh, surname. And, uh, that's, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. So I'll give you an idea. Uh, I write in my, in my book, uh, there, there were there were three and a half million Jews in the Soviet Union after World War II. Uh, there were fifty, less than fifty-five synagogues in the entire country. Kharkiv, a town of uh, I don't know a million people, a city of a million people. There were a hundred thousand Jews in in Kharkiv uh, during the post-war years. Did not have a synagogue, not one. And uh, there are fifty synagogues within walking distance of my house. <laughs> <Definitely> <laughs> Uh, and, and there aren't a hundred thousand Jews in, in, in the Beverly Fairfax area. Uh, and, uh, in, in one of the biggest cities in the second biggest city in Ukraine, one of the biggest cities in the Soviet union, 
uh, with one of the largest populations of Jews, no synagogue. So it gives you an idea of what was going on. There was one synagogue, main synagogue in Moscow. There were a couple of you know, hovels uh, out yeah. in, the outs in the exurbs of Moscow. They weren't really, I wouldn't call them synagogues. Uh, there was one major synagogue. It was kind of a showcase, you know, the Moscow Choral Synagogue. I actually uh, spent uh, 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 some time in that synagogue during my trip in 1969. I made a, a separate trip. And uh, Yom Kippur, uh, I mm. spent in the Moscow synagogue. Uh, but they, they segregate the, the foreigners. You, you can't mingle with the, with the congregants. You sit in this kind of royal box up next to the pulpit. So it's that's the... the so, so that's what they were living a, with, but they wouldn't let them leave. They wouldn't let them leave. They didn't let anybody leave. Uh, you, you know, there was a... It was we call it the Iron Curtain for a reason. It was they didn't let people emigrate, and uh, uh, and the the Jews wanted it started a movement. There's a handful of them, I'd say a handful, a few thousand of them who had the guts to because technically you could apply to leave the country. Of course, ninety nine point nine percent of the time you got rejected, and when you applied to leave the country, you were stigmatized. You know, like why do you want to leave the socialist paradise? Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe we should send you to re-education camp, take you away from your job as a teacher in a high school and Maybe you should sweep the cemetery. Right. There were repercussions for wanting to leave, but leaving Absolutely. wasn't one of them. Absolutely. And uh, and so uh, this movement started uh, to emerge, uh, started by by the folks in, in the, the, some of the younger Jews, professional Jews uh, who had something to lose. This is one of the great things that people don't appreciate. I mean, there, there was no technically no middle class in the Soviet Union, but if you were a professor, or a member of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR, and you asked to leave the country, you are risking everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. You could lose your job. They could kick you out of the academy. Uh, they often did. Uh, and and uh, you could lose your apartment. I mean, there are all kinds of consequences to it. But they did it anyway. And uh, and and then they got the attention of people like me, uh, students from all over the, the, the Western world, uh, adults as well, uh, the Jewish community. Uh, more broadly, was slow to react to it uh, until Elie Wiesel wrote this book back in the, it's, I think, 1966-67, called "The Jews of Silence," and uh, everybody assumed that he was talking about the Russian, the, the Soviet Jews, that they were silent. And what what you discover at the end of the book is that he's not talking about them; that he's talking about us who, yeah, who sit yeah. here in comfort in our, uh, you know, in our homes and our apartments in. in "Quote unquote freedom," and and we keep our mouth shut. We don't we don't say anything about it. Well, for the post Holocaust generation of which I'm a part, um, you know, we've always been haunted by, you know, by the question: What did our parents' generation do? What were they doing? Uh, why didn't they raise their voices more? Uh, the Holocaust was very, very much known to uh, to people in you know on this side of the yeah. Atlantic. I mean, there's there used to be. There used to be a lore that people didn't know what was going on. Everybody knew about what was going on. The Hollywood Bowl in 1943 had a huge pageant with Edward G. Robinson and a bunch of the actors and actresses in in, uh, in Hollywood uh, that chronicled every single thing, the, the concentration camps, the gas chambers, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. It was very well known. And uh, we were haunted by the fact that uh, that generation didn't do much. And... Uh, and you know, as a historian, I, I don't like to put myself in another generation's shoes because because I'm not in their shoes, and they're you know you can't know exactly why people do what they do, and you got to walk a mile in their shoes from time to time. But we weren't going to repeat that that result, and so uh, one of my friends uh, who writes Yossi Klein Halevi uh, in the documentary about Soviet Jews says that the Soviet Jewry movement gave gave us the opportunity to retroactively fight the Holocaust. And in a psychological way, uh, that's the way I feel. I feel. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, I, I devoted my uh, most of my time uh, not to studies. <laughs> right, right. You, you have a you have a scene where your history advisor. Um... Yeah, my doctoral, my doctoral advisor, my doc. You know, I was a graduate student at UCLA in the UCLA history department, British Empire history. Uh, you know, my dad begged me not to go into British Empire history. My dad, among other things, was a history teacher. He said, you'll never get a job. No, nobody hires British Empire historians. You know, if you're going to be a his history teacher, try American or European. But and of course, I didn't listen to my dad. And of course, he was right. And but I uh, I had been arrested uh, with a group of, of my colleagues, student colleagues, um, protesting the Osipov Balalaika Orchestra in uh, at the Shrine Auditorium. Uh, we weren't picketing the, 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 
the uh, performers. We never called for a boycott. We, we didn't believe in that. But it was an informational picket line, and, and we went inside the, uh, the, the auditorium. We bought tickets, and we sat in the front row of the balcony, and we unfurled, when intermission started, we unfurled these big banners uh, that said, in Russian, that said, let my people go, hoping that the performers could, could see it from as the curtain came down. And we were arrested, and you know the cops were waiting for us. And my picture appeared being let out in handcuffs uh, from the Shrine Auditorium on the third page of the Sunday Times, and uh, Sunday LA Times. And on Monday, I I see my professor, Professor John S. Galbraith, not the economist, but equally as important a scholar in his field, which was British Empire history. John Galbraith calls me into his office, and he says, "Mr. Yaroslavsky, when when are your academic pursuits going to take as much of your uh, time is your extracurricular activities, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I did. I said, I hear you, sir. Uh, uh, and, but as I was walking out of his office, I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to get my master's. I can't. I can't envision myself sitting in a library the rest of my life studying colonial office minutes. There's a world out there to save. And the hardest thing I ever had to do was to go back and tell Galbraith a few days later that I was going to leave after you know, quit the program at, at the end of the academic year. And he said, uh, I understand. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, I, I wish you the best. And three years later, I get elected to the board, to, to the city council. Right. Uh, two and a half years later. And I get a letter from, uh, for, from Professor Galbraith. He said, the British Empire's loss is Los Angeles gain. There you go. Um, let's jump ahead. Um, if you can do a really quick thing on what I'm sure most people ask, which is what in the hell is a 26-year-old doing even running, never mind winning? Yeah, so uh, I never had an ambition to run for office. Uh, I got the political bug uh, not as not as a potential candidate, but as somebody, my, my ambition, my real ambition, the more realistic ambition in the early 70s was I, uh, after getting the bug in the Soviet jury movement and lobbying Congress on some legislation, I would have loved to have gone to Washington and been a staffer on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. I just, I loved, you know, those, those folks and, and the issues they dealt with. And uh, uh, that, that wasn't practical at the time. Uh, some of the folks that I worked with in the McGovern campaign in 72, uh, when Ed Edelman, my predecessor on both on the city council and on the board of supervisors, a great public servant in his own right, when Ed announced he was going to run for the board of supervisors uh, and he came in first in the primary, he had to win in the general election. But in June of 74, uh, it was clear he was going to win. Some of the folks who worked I worked with in the McGovern campaign said, why don't you think about running for his seat when when he leaves? And my first reaction was, I I don't have a base. I don't have you know, I can't raise money. Uh, you got to have some resources. And and. Uh, more more and more people came to me uh, who were not particularly sophisticated people uh, but you know I started getting it started I started warming up to the idea make a long story short talk to my wife about it um, Barbara and uh, and I said we have no kids uh, you know if I'm gonna ever do this now's the time to do it you know I could take a leave of absence from from my job which was running the Council for Soviet Jews I was teaching confirmation classes in synagogues in Long Beach and Woodland Hills and West Side. I'll keep that job because it doesn't take that much time. And we'll, we have enough money to, for, to survive for six months. Barbara herself worked at UCLA. She was administrative assistant in the administration there. And uh, so we were we could do it. If, if, uh, and she said, do it. You know, Barbara was, uh, we, I, I still have her sign on the kitchen sink, uh, above the kitchen sink, which said a, a pessimist has no, no motor, an optimist has no brakes. And she <laughs> had no brakes, you know, just, just, just do it. You know, if you want to do it, that's what you should do. And, and she was all for it. She, she loved people a lot more than I did. I shouldn't say love people. She, she was more comfortable with people uh, and she loved them. Uh, I loved people too, but I wasn't comfortable with them. I was, believe it or not, a shy person. Uh, when I walk into a room, I didn't walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm Zev. You know, what's your name? Uh, that wasn't me. That was much more her gift. Yeah, that was. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, you know, she was one of those people when she walked into a room, the room came to her. Yeah. Uh, it, and and the, the longer she lived, she passed away four and a half years ago. Um, in fact, uh, we just celebrated her, her birthday last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a freak, you know, uh, a casualty of West Nile virus. Uh, she got bit by a mosquito. Oh. 
and uh, that was that was the that was that. It was uh, really a tragic thing for us. But she, uh, the, the longer she got around, and and, uh, and and more and more people got to know her. She was a public servant in her own right. She served on the medical board of California for 13 years. She was on the board of nursing for several years before she died. Uh, she was on you know, half a dozen boards here, the, the LA Free Clinic, and anyway, she she was uh, when she walked into a room. Uh, that room came to her, uh, literally as well as figuratively. And uh, so I didn't know it at the time. I mean, I, that, that's the, what attracted me to her, is her gregarious, outgoing personality and you know, just wonderful human being. But what I didn't appreciate is how that same, that same aura about her and a genuineness, authenticity about her that got my attention also got the attention of every single person with whom she came in contact. When she died, there were 1,100 people came to her funeral. Oh, 1,100 people on December 30th, uh, 2018. That was a holiday week. It was the day before. It was not meant. It was not advertised. You know, we, we didn't say where the funeral was going to be. The word of mouth got 1,100 people to to her funeral. It was just stunning, and it was, and it was, uh, you know, I dedicated this book to her. Yes, uh, yes. And not just because she was my wife, but because because of what I'm about to tell you. When you looked at the people in that in that uh, sanctuary um, at her funeral. I mean, here was Eli Broad sitting over here and Alex Padilla, now our U.S. Senator, sitting over there. The mayor of Los Angeles eulogized her. And over there, there was uh, the woman who uh, cleaned our house for many years. My gardener uh, came. Uh, you know, the salt of the earth people uh, from, from, from A to Z. So you had from, from a billionaire to, to a minimum yeah. wage worker. Uh, and she touched them all. And uh, anyway, uh, I could, I could, and I may actually do a book on her, not not just from me, but to put a, an anthology of essays together from people who knew her, because I think that would be a great gift to her grandchildren. But she was a big asset to me, and uh, and when she uh, when she said do it, you know, that was it, and and uh, it was going to be a long shot. I had been admitted to the UCLA School of Business in 1974. I asked them for a deferral. I actually found that letter that that granted me that deferral. I was looking around for something else, and I tripped over that letter a few weeks ago, and uh, and uh, so I took a leave of absence from from the business school, which I never actually stepped foot in, and uh, and funny thing happened on the way to business yeah, school yeah. was I got elected to the city council. I did not expect it to happen. Nobody did. Uh, probably the reason I won. There were a lot of reasons, but. One of the reasons is that my opposition did not take me seriously. Right, they, right. As you and, and I'm going to do this quickly. Yeah, quickly. go ahead. There, there was a runoff system, and out of three candidates who got the most votes, you beat the num the uh, the number three candidate by just 300 votes. Yeah, and the reason was, as you point out, that the two of them thought they were competing with each other. Exactly. And and then you sneak in and you win, and and you your victory is a testament one to being overlooked <laughs> but two to knocking on every door till people were tired of seeing you yeah it was uh you know i if i'm nothing else i'm i'm disciplined uh you know i, I ran track in high school you know and uh you learn you learn to at least you learn from my coach and i write about my coach a little bit dean balzaret uh who's still around coaching uh uh you know that that hard work uh produces dividends john wooden had the same yeah you know the same philosophy. Uh, you, you you practice like you play, uh, or uh, sorry, you play like you practice. If you, if you if you slough off, you're going to slough off in, in the game too. So I I took uh, I I just walked every single day, seven days a week. Uh, didn't matter whether it was raining. We had a lot of rain that that spring. And uh, by the way, walking precincts in the rain is the best vote getting tactic you can get. People oh. are very impressed when when you come with the, with a raincoat and a driving rainstorm. And uh, and and you know and, and after after dark when people wouldn't open their doors I'd go to bowling alleys and supermarkets and yeah you're right uh, people got I I'm voting for you I'm voting for you you know quit quit bugging me uh, yeah so uh, and I really sensed it as the campaign went on I sensed that that the uh, that, that the tide was turning and I had no I just wanted to be respectable in that election when when the first returns came in on election night and then in the primary I was in fourth place I had twelve percent of the vote but in those days. Uh, the more conservative candidates got the predominant percentage of the of the uh, uh, the absentee votes, and there were very few early votes. Right, and it's not like it is. We didn't have vote by mail. It was a, you had to apply for an absentee ballot, et cetera. 
So I thought I was in good shape when I saw that I had 12% because the Republican in the race, we didn't run by, partis by, by parties, but I knew she, she, she posed, uh, positioned herself as the Republican. Uh, she was ahead, and, uh, and uh, I knew she wouldn't su uh, sustain that as the evening went on. And all of a sudden, you know, the, vo the real votes started coming in the same day votes, and I catapulted into third place. And then I catapulted into second place, and I held on. I beat Roz Wyman, who had been the councilwoman um, who just passed away this in the past year. Uh, Roz Wyman still is the youngest person to ever hold a right. city council position, 22 years of age. She was elected in 1953, defeated in 1965, and trying to make a comeback in 1975. And my opponent, Fran Savage, who also just recently passed away, who became a good friend of mine uh, once the election was over, Fran just beat her up, beat up Roz. They, they, uh, we, we've now seen the polling that they did. The, her, Fran Savage's campaign manager donated his uh, uh, files to the state archives. And one of the things in the state archives from her consultant was the, all the material they had about that 1975 council race. So uh, it was part of the research I did for this book. Uh, I actually learned about it from a, from a PhD student at UCLA who told me, uh, you know, the poll showed that you had 5% going in. And I said, what poll? He said, Savage's poll. I said, where did you see Savage's poll? And he goes, oh, they're, they're in the archives up in Sacramento. So I made a beeline for Sacramento and I, and I found it. And the, the, what had happened is that Roz, um, in the beginning, they took a poll and Roz had 38% of the vote and Fran and I had 5%. And nobody knew who Fran Savage was. She was a staffer to the mayor, uh, administrative assistant uh, to the mayor. And Roz, uh, you know, was still had a lot of name identification. And I was surprised that I had 5%, but people in the Jewish community, because of my work in Soviet Jewry, they had known me. I'd been on television a lot, a lot of our social action stuff. Uh, but you know, it's one thing to have 5% at the beginning. It's another thing to, to catapult that or to, to yeah, yeah. Uh, into 20%. And uh, what happened was Fran panicked about that and uh, and decided to spend a lot of her money attacking Roz. Sure, and, yeah. and, uh, and in the process, she... She damaged Roz so much that Roz couldn't even get to second place, and and that's you know sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. But um, I, I got lucky uh, that that happened. Uh, but you know there's an old locker room uh, placard at Fairfax High School that said "Luck is where preparation meets opportunity," and you can make your own luck. And uh, if I hadn't walked precincts every day for six months, if I hadn't shaken you know tens of thousands of hands uh, during that period of time. It wouldn't have made any difference, but uh, it all worked out. And uh, and you know, I, I I've often I wanted to ask the dean at the at the UCLA Business School since I'm teaching there now whether whether they're still holding a spot for me. That's right, <laughs> right. Finally, yeah. do something with your life. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, Zev, we have gotten to the end basically. And, yeah, that's too bad. And you've just <laughs> run for office, and you've just won. What yeah. I want to let people know is that the book is this personal, but it is also about the city. It is about politics. It is about the evolution of the city. Um, and I'm just going to run through some of the things that you will deal with when you read the book. Um, the Diamond Lane, which I'd forgotten about, was Zev's first uh, uh, in-office real political victory. Privacy and surveillance, the, uh, the, 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 the reign of the uh, LAPD as a kind of a rogue outfit um, was, was a very meaningful issue to Zev, uh, partially because of the experience he'd had with his ancestors in, in the Soviet Union. So this idea of, of invading people's privacy and surveillance was something that- Terrence, uh, can, I, can I just interject on that yeah, very, yeah. very briefly? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was advised when I get, became a councilman, don't take on the LAPD. Right, they have ways right. of getting back at you. And I said, you know, I played hide and seek with the KGB in Moscow. Uh, LAPD is a walk in the park. Uh, and it's precisely, you know, the, the Public Disorder and Intelligence Division, which was a, a misnomer for what they were. They were, a, they were a monitoring agency. They monitored the political activities of people whose politics were different than the chief of police. That's right. I mean, right. people like John Mack, the head of the Urban League, yep. I was on yep. their list. Yep. Uh, uh, the pastor at, at uh, um, the Episcopal Church in Pasadena was on their list. Uh, the, the, women four was on their list. I mean, it was it was a horrible, horrible thing. And, uh, and and so one of the first things I did when I got there was to take that that agency on. 
And uh, people said, why, why'd you do that? And, and I tell my students, I said, if you're going to go into public life, actually any walk of life, you, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and say, what issue am I willing to lose my job over? Because if you can't answer that question, then you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you'll always be at the mercy of others. And for me, that issue is the Bill of Rights, is especially the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom from freedom of religion. Uh, get the government out of your business. Uh, they have no business looking at, at, at in, infiltrating uh, professors' classes at UCLA. One of my classes was infiltrated by a, by a, a sergeant of the LAPD. Uh, by the way, one of the one of the uh, uh, infiltrations took place in my office. Uh, there was a group That's of right. uh, uh, people who were advocating for a freedom of information ordinance for the city, and I was carrying that legislation. And we had a strategy meeting in my office, and one of the people who was part of that team who came into my office was an undercover cop for the PDID of the LAPD. That's outrageous. Yes, That's yes. goddamn outrageous. Yes. And, uh, yeah, anyway, sorry. Oh, and so so that que- I was going to say, if we were going to get down to a couple of principles, that question, what are you willing, what issue... What cause are you willing to give up your job for, lose your job for, was one of them. And the other was that quote from Macaulay. Yeah. Lord Thomas Macaulay, uh, a British, 19th century British uh, liberal parliamentarian and a historian. And he, uh, I, I tripped over his quote decades ago, and it, it stayed with me, and it was kind of my, my, my North Star. The, this quote is this. No man is fit to govern great societies who hesitates about disobliging the few who have access to him for the sake of the many he will never see. And, you know, that was my philosophy as a councilman. But boy, when I became a county supervisor, uh, which is, you know, the the human service arm of our society, we deal with all of the people who are on the margins of society, usually through no fault of their own. We had to be mindful of the people we never see. The people who have lobbyists that can get into your office and know how to get a hold of you, uh, you know, that's, they could take care of themselves. It's the people who, you know, the janitors who were fighting for a living wage uh, back in the, in the 90s. Uh, I, I took up their cause. Uh, uh, the, the people who are getting screwed by, by the rest of us uh, and, and who, who, who aren't, aren't seen and aren't heard, uh, especially at the county where, where yes. you have to find these folks. They, they weren't as well organized in the 90s and in the early 2000s as they are now. But uh, you know, that Macaulay quote always stuck with me and it stuck with all my staff. I mean, my staff had to memorize that that quote. You know, no man is fit to govern great societies who hesitates about disobliging the few who have access to him for the sake of the many they never for, uh, they never see. And, uh, you know, the, the few who have access to him, disoblige them all you want. They'll right. take care of themselves. Right. One way and as you did over your career. OK, we've got we've got to bring okay. this to a close. We, we may we may want to do this again, Zev, when we jump into what's the difference between the city and the county? What's the difference between then and now? What does yeah. this have to tell us about the rest of the country and all the divisive polarization that, that has us um, distracted from the people we can't see and their needs? Uh, yeah. the, the issue of inequality, uh, which I know is, is huge for you, its relationship to homelessness etc etc but for right now let me tell people that the book is zev's los angeles from boyle heights to the halls of power the website where you can learn more about his current work is luskin l-u-s-k-i-n dot u-c-l-a dot e-d-u for this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work go to terence mcnally dot net t-e-r-r-e-n-c-e M-C-N-A-L-L-Y dot net or a world that just might work dot com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and links to probably 10 or 15 articles to flesh out the conversation and bring you up to speed, um, email me at T-E-McNally, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, T-E-McNally at Mac dot com. Or you can also sign up at my website. Uh, you can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, most major podcast sites. And you'll find years of podcasts at my site or those sites. Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, of Boyle Heights, by the way, um, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, to you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely and finally, Thank you, Zeb Yaroslavsky. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you, Terrence. Good to be with you.